This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The biggest city on the western slope faces a significant budget gap. Grand Junction wants to narrow a $2.1 million shortfall. It's asking city employees if some of them are willing to quit. City manager Greg Caton says the general fund relies heavily on oil and gas severance taxes and city sales taxes, and neither is keeping up. What we believe to be happening in the local economy is a lot of the local residents are struggling from the oil and gas industry and that sluggishness, and therefore we're not seeing our revenues being realized. And that economic picture stands in stark contrast to the Metro Denver boom. Amy Hamilton is a reporter at the Daily Sentinel and joins me from our studio on Main Street in Grand Junction. Amy, welcome to the program. Thank you. Good to be here. And tell us more about this request Grand Junction put out to its employees. Well, Grand Junction is asking its employees, they have um, 641 employees, they're asking some employees and the ones that can um, if they would like to take um, a lay, like to take a labor reduction. They can they could leave for um, up to a year. They could retire early or um, what's the third option? They could um, reduce their hours that they work. Oh, all sorts of options. Uh, one of them being is it sounds like a, a sort of prolonged furlough, I guess. Yes, you you could take up to a year if you're in um, the correct position, a position that qualifies. If you're the only person in that department, you you probably aren't going to be able to to take that option. Yeah, it makes it a bit more difficult at that point. Yeah. Has anyone uh, taken the city up on the offer yet? Um, I heard last night at a city at a city workshop meeting that about a dozen employees are inquiring about the program, and at least one employee has um, submitted. an application to do that. They have until October 17th to take the offer. And if they don't, or if not enough of them don't, what are the consequences? Um, The city will, will look again at how much savings they, they did get from that. And the city wants to save a million dollars in labor and benefits. So um, I don't know how many employees that equals, but it's it's going to be a few at least. Right. And if not enough take them up, what are the options for the city? The city said it will probably look at um, labor reductions. It will look at layoffs and or furloughs. All right. Uh, yeah. That is to say they, they will dictate the terms as opposed to asking people to come forward. Yes, unfortunately. Yeah. <laughs> uh, some concern that city services in Grand Junction might be reduced or might suffer as a result? The city is saying they're not going to reduce services this year in 2016, and they are not in 2017, but they're going to have the conversation um, next year um, whether some services do need to be reduced or increases in um, the the amounts people pay for services. So they will be looking at, at that. The city has already kept unfilled positions vacant, trimmed funds for capital improvement projects that haven't started Uh, There's also been a halt on all non-essential travel through the end of the year. Uh, Tell us what what economic forces in the broader community have led to this. Paint a picture of of the situation in the Grand Junction area for those who aren't familiar with it economically. Sure. So we've lost um, jobs in the oil and gas industry. The city estimates we've lost about 2,000 of those jobs and so that translates into there's fewer folks working, there's fewer folks paying taxes, 
Um, there's also reductions in severance taxes because when there's fewer oil and gas jobs, um, the severance taxes, which are pays um, municipalities for um, the effects of oil and gas, are going to be less because there aren't as many effects because there isn't as much oil and gas production. Um, so the cities in the Grand Valley are kind of getting a double whammy right now hit. The cities, you say plural, and uh, Grand Junction mm-hmm. City Manager Greg Canton says that the, the economic recovery seen along much of the Front Range really hasn't benefited the Western Slope. Let's listen. We have a, a tale of two different slopes here. We have the Front Range that has fully recovered and a robust, diversified economy, and the Western Slope, non-resort Western Slope communities continue to struggle and specifically those impacted um, or heavily dependent on the oil and gas industry are struggling right now because of that specific sector. That Colorado is a tale of two slopes. I believe Mesa County, which you know contains Grand Junction, is, is in a hiring freeze as well. Is that right? It is, yes. They're not hiring any, any new folks at this time. How is this playing out in other towns besides Grand Junction? Well, Fruta, for example... Um, they are also seeing fewer revenues from oil and gas, but their businesses are doing better than last year. They're just, their total revenues aren't coming in any higher than last year because of that hit on oil and gas. So even though local businesses might be doing better, the, the revenues that the city gets are not increasing. I want to say that Grand Junction is one of the largest cities in Colorado that has not debruced. Uh, This is some lingo, but uh, this means that they've not gotten permission from voters to hold on to excess tax revenue. The Taxpayers' Bill of Rights, or TABOR, requires that money be returned to residents. Uh, The city is collecting about $1.2 million a year in property taxes over the TABOR limit, but Grand Junction voters only gave permission for that money to help pay down city debt on an area road project. Is there some sense that, that this might lead to a debrucing in Grand Junction? I haven't heard specifically. There are a lot of Grand Junction residents that really appreciate and like Tabor, that it limits the size of government. Um, if that if that does happen, if there's a movement underfoot, I, I'm sure to report about that. That would be a shift, you were saying, based on the, the Absolutely. politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What, would you, what does that tell us about the politics of Grand Junction? Um, folks are pretty conservative. They they don't mind small government. They want to keep um, spending under control. Um, they like to see economic growth for sure. And there's a lot of movement to, to get more economic development in the Grand Valley. But um, on a local level, keeping governments small and manageable is something that I think a lot of residents are interested in seeing. That is Amy Hamilton, staff writer at the Daily Sentinel in Grand Junction. Another area reeling from the decline in oil and gas is Weld County. The Greeley Tribune reports the county's second largest oil and gas producer plans another round of layoffs. Meanwhile, a new federal report finds Weld County lost jobs faster than just about every other large county in the country last year, at a rate of 3.1%. County Commissioner Sean Conway says, yes, there's been an impact, but he believes Weld is in a good position overall. We prepared for that. And so I think our uh, foresight 
in terms of accounting to look at diversification, continue to recruit new businesses, uh, and diversify our economy um, is starting to pay off here. And that's why we haven't been as impacted maybe as other counties. Conway says that diversification extends to food processing companies like Laprino Foods and JBS USA and to solar and wind energy companies like Vestas and Silicon Ranch. And we'll be right back with a Denver minister who finds holiness in your flaws. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. She's tattooed, swears like a sailor, and considers herself a misanthrope. Not the traits you'd associate with a pastor, but Nadia Bolzweber is one. She founded the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver, a Lutheran church. Bolzweber is a former stand-up comedian who had a drinking and drug problem. She's also a New York Times bestselling author for her memoir, Pastrix. And her latest book is called Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. It is just out in paperback. And welcome to the program. Thanks so much. Nice to be here. I love how you lay bare the, the darkest parts of your nature in this book. You started the House for All Sinners and Saints in 2008. And early on, you thought it would attract, quote unquote, cool people. But you write in this book that it drew a lot of folks who are socially awkward, reading here from the book. So eventually I started to ask myself, wait, why am I not attracting other cool people? I mean, why aren't there people like me coming? And then in parentheses, you seem disgusted by your own thinking and say, what kind of person thinks this? Say more about who showed up and how that differed from your view. Well, it's kind of a a longer story, but... um... You know, earlier in that chapter, I discussed the fact that I was really sick as a kid. I had an autoimmune disorder, which caused my face to be kind of disfigured. And um, I was that way from ages 12 to 16. So, you know, I ate all of my lunches alone in middle school, and I developed a sort of angry personality that sort of masked some of that. And, um, you know, I early on in the life of the congregation, people who were socially awkward kept showing up. And I was like, why are they coming? Why aren't I attracting people like me? And it just took a couple of years before I realized, oh, my gosh, I had been attracting people like me all along. It's just it wasn't the the sort of, you know, funny, um, tattooed, you know, supposedly cool pastor who drew them in. It was the it was the awkward, painfully skinny girl who ate all of her lunches alone in middle school was drawing the people in. Like, I'd been attracting people like me all along. I was just too arrogant to admit it. Huh. And when you had that realization, what what did it feel like that these people were actually more like you than you thought? Well, what happened was it, it I don't know, as cheesy as it sounds, it like changed the shape of my heart because... I could so much more easily love them then. Like then I, it's like because I stopped trying to hide the parts of myself that they were making me face. So instead of just projecting things on them that I didn't like about myself and then reacting in that way, I could just see how sort of broken and beautiful they were at the same time. It's like once I sort of accepted that in myself, it was easier to love that in other people as sort of pop psychology 101, as that sounds. Mm. How does that relate to the subtitle of this book, Finding God in All the Wrong People? Well, you know, I think, you know, religious people, it's like you have to be some 
odd combination of Ned Flanders and Bono, you know, in order to be considered, like, <laughs> Christian. I don't know. There, it just sort of boils down to this, like, saintly sort of, you know, nicey-nice character and personality. And yet that's not—I don't experience God in, in that particular affect, you know, which I think that's just an affect. I think we all have these jagged edges of our humanity, and so much of religion and spirituality is about, like, sanding those things down so we're super smooth and shiny. But the fact is, is like the jagged edges of our humanity is actually what connects us to God and other people. You see that in in Mary, don't you? Jesus' mom. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she was, you know, this insignificant peasant girl in first century Palestine who had an unplanned pregnancy, right? That's not the way you expect God to show up. And yet... God chose to make God's home in the womb of this this young woman, which is, what does that say about all human bodies and the nature of God? I think it's something to pay attention to. There are somewhere around 250 people in your congregation. Oh, there's much more. There's like 400. 400. We have <laughs> yeah. old numbers. Yeah. It's, it's been growing. It's big, yeah. <laughs> you meet in Denver's North Capitol Hill neighborhood, and you welcome... LGBTQ individuals, people struggling with drug and alcohol abuse. You welcome agnostics and non-believers. You consider yourself an Orthodox Lutheran. You write in this book, there are many reasons to steer clear of Christianity, no question. What do you mean? Oh, man. I totally understand why people don't want to have anything to do with it. I mean, every time... I hear Sarah Palin say something irretrievably mean and stupid about poor people. (laughs) You know, I'm like, I get why people wouldn't want to have anything to do with it. There's so many bad representations, and it's been so perverted for so long. But but the fact is, is that 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 symbol system is still really powerful at its core, despite the fact that myself and so many other people have done damage to it, right? Despite the fact that it's had bad representation, myself included, that particular symbol system has so much redemption and beauty in it that I think it's, we can't just throw the baby out with the bathwater. You include yourself in how Christianity has been poorly represented. What do you mean? Well, like, I'm just not that nice. You know, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not there's like this there's this huge distance between like my ideal self and my actual self and and I I am always aware of that distance and yet I think that like the self who God has a relationship to is my actual self. I mean, I think that's one reason why Christianity is so powerful. I don't know why it's been sold as a behavior management program for so long, like a way to sort of perfect yourself and make yourself into something shiny and perfect, because that would imply you then didn't need God. What, how, how, what is, that doesn't even make sense. Let's continue this discussion with Pastor Nadia Bowles-Weber after a break. Her new book is accidental saints finding God in all the wrong people. And she is the founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner, and let's return to my conversation with Pastor Nadia Balls-Weber, founder of the House for All Sinners and Saints. It's a Lutheran church in Denver, but that welcomes many non-Lutherans and, frankly, many non-believers Her new book is called Accidental Saints, Finding God in All the Wrong People. 
And you write in this book about a woman named Alma White. How did she shed new light on what it means to be saintly for you? And who is Alma White? Well, I, um, you know, I started the church when I was still in seminary. And at the time, I knew of two women in the entire country I could name who had started churches by themselves. It's just not something that happens very often. And I was desperate for role models. And um, a woman who's involved in the church and I uh, were walking down the street uh, right by the Capitol. And we look up and we see KPOF on the top of this church. And we look in the courtyard and there's this memorial to the founder of the Pillar of Fire Church. And it says Alma White. And it was like the early 1900s. And I just looked at her. I was like, Alma is a woman's name. And I just quickly pulled out my iPhone and I looked up Alma White on Wikipedia. And like, I got so excited because it was like, she founded a church in the early 1900s in Denver, like on her own. And I was so excited. And I just kept reading. And she was, you know, the first bishop, female bishop in America. And she, you know, she was known for her feminism. I was like, awesome. And then I kept reading. And it was like, and her association with the Ku Klux Klan and her anti-Semitism. And I was like, wah, wah. Not a role model. No. So I I call my friend Sarah Miles uh, in San Francisco and I go, oh, I thought I had a role model, but it ends up she's just a lousy racist, you know. And she said, well, you know, give me her name and I'll add her to the litany of saints along with all the other broken people of God. And it just made me go, oh, my gosh, she's right. I just... You know, the idea of a saint is like somebody who's so, who's perfected themselves, who's on, who's maybe undergone the project of their own sanctification so much that they're practically floating off the ground. And while having traits to admire in other people, there's nothing wrong with that. What I really want is to feel less alone. And I feel less alone when I know the broken parts of people, when they're honest with me about the mistakes they've made, Right. And so I think what we celebrate in the saints is truly God's ability to get beautiful, redemptive stuff done through broken people more than we celebrate the fact that these people have managed to not be broken. But if that's the case, if there's so much to celebrate in in flaws, what is the point of avoiding sin? Well, that is to say, the more I sin, the more you could find to love about me, Pastor Nadia. Yeah, probably. You know, because I do take people's co- private confession and absolution, and honest to God, most times it's boring. Like, like nothing, nothing personal, but like I am unimpressed with your sin. You should really go out and try harder. But um, no, <laughs> no, but you can't actually avoid sin because it's just we're like human beings have a have a, a capacity for screwing things up. There's no way to avoid it. Now you can avoid a lot of forms of like immorality, you know, but you're never gonna avoid being somebody who's broken and who makes mistakes. And the thing is, is that because we're broken and make mistakes, it means that we have no choice but to rely on God. And so having such a sort of low view of human beings allows you to have a high view of God and the way that God comes in and fills in those cracks and manages, like I said, to get beautiful things done through us, even though we are broken. This seems like an important distinction you make between sin and immorality. Yeah, I mean, a a lot of times they're conflated, and sometimes certainly they overlap. But I think the problem with saying, oh, sin is like this list of no-nos, and if you can manage to avoid them, then you're good. Um, I've never met anybody who's managed to avoid being a sinner, because even if you manage to live this super-duper, clean-cut, moral Ned Flanders life, then you're just prideful. 
right? And then now, again, that's a sin, right? So we all think on some level, like, this kind of work or what I call law will save us. Like, just give me a plan. Give me some work to do. Give me a project to undertake. And somehow that will save me. But the thing is, is when you're under a work plan or you're under the law, you only have two choices, pride or despair. You're either prideful about the fact that you're pulling it off better than other people, or you despair at the fact that you can never manage to pull it off. And either way, there's no freedom in that. Hmm. You've made uh, several references to Ned Flanders. <laughs> For those who are not Simpsons fans, this is this sort of um, milk toast, uh, ultra conservative Christian in the in the Simpsons, who's like super duper cheerful all the time, which yeah. I'm always suspicious of. But also, uh, g- like a genuinely good neighbor to people, right? Yeah, a good neighbor. And there's like nothing wrong with that. But I can't, I just can't get behind the idea that anybody is like always legitimately cheerful or always wanting to be helpful, right? Maybe their sin is their need to be needed, but it's in there somewhere. You say Jesus is like a Facebook friend who always tags bad photos of you. Yeah, yeah, you know the ones where like your one eye's half closed and your butt looks really big. Uh huh. Yeah. You mean, you mean virtually every Facebook photo? Is <laughs> exactly. Why is Jesus like that? Well, he's. I just feel like Jesus is like relentless for not letting us off the hook when we think that we can justify ourselves. Like people would always come to him and be like, "Hey, look, like I honor my father and mother, and I go to the temple and I tithe, so like I'm good, right? Like I've justified myself. I've undergone the project of my own sanctification." And he's like, well, have you sold all your possessions and given them to the poor? You know, it's like the people who were stoning the woman caught in adultery. He's like, you who are without sin cast the first stone. So basically every single attempt that we have to justify ourselves, Jesus says, not so fast. You sort of dissect sin in the book through the lens of a character named Candy. I think this is not her real name. Um, You met Candy while working as a student hospital chaplain. Candy had lost her unborn child. She had several kids but couldn't keep any of them. And she also had some physical signs of having used meth. You write that people aren't punished for their sins so much as by their sins. What do you mean and how does Candy illustrate that? Well, the reason I was telling that that story, just to put it in context, was just the um, just the power of, of knowing... Uh, forgiveness of actually hearing that our worst mistakes do not define the way God sees us, do not give us our identity, just as our greatest victories don't define the way God sees us or Mm. give us our identity. And so in that case, um, you know, people really can be weighed down by the things that they've done. I think people can really carry that burden, like I said, of that distance between their ideal self and their actual self. But it's fascinating that I I would want to be freed from my sins and not defined by them. I am less apt to want to be um, separated from my greatest victories. I know. That's a killer, isn't it? Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. Well, because um, ultimately pride isn't really going to serve you in the way that we think it will. I mean, I think this is why... I believe in God is I just need that power that's bigger than me to save me both from my 
from my sins, but also from the pride of my victories. Um, people ask me, hey, how many copies of your books have you sold? And I'm like, oh, my gosh, I beg pe- my publisher not to tell me because I, there's no good to be had from it. Because if it's more than I thought, I'll be prideful. And if it's less than I thought, I'm going to be depressed. So, like, I don't even want to know, right? So I feel like so much of our lives can sort of teeter into one direction or another. And a place that feels more integrated and balanced is to know someone else has this. Like my identity, my worth, my value is not going to be based ultimately in a spiritual way in any way by the things I've done well or the things I've done poorly. There's so much freedom in that. What role do um, skeptics, non-believers play at the House for All Sinners and Saints in Denver? Because you, you have members who, who just aren't sure God is, is around. Yeah, I I never really feel responsible for what people believe at church. I mean, I feel responsible for what they hear, but what they believe is affected by so many things I have nothing to do with. And so we've just never thought belief should be the basis for belonging. Literally, the basis for belonging is showing up. That's it. My, I had a bishop who said that's the greatest spiritual discipline, just showing up. Mm. You talk openly about what you consider your shortcomings or internal battles, both with religion and life more broadly. Can, can we just wrap up with this excerpt? I'd like to have you read it. Sure. Okay. My own spirituality is most active in the moments when I realize God may have gotten something beautiful done through me, despite the fact that I'm an a-hole. Or when I'm confronted by the mercy of the gospel so much that I can't manage to hate my enemies. And when I'm unable to judge the sin of someone else, which, let's be honest, I love to do, because my own crap is too much in the way. And when I have to bear witness to another human being's suffering despite my desire to be left alone. And when I'm forgiven by someone even though I don't deserve it, and my forgiver does this because he, too, is trapped by the gospel— And when I end up being changed by learning to love someone I'd never choose out of a catalog, but whom God sends my way to teach me about God's love. But none of these things are a result of spiritual practices or disciplines as admirable as those things can be. These things are born in a religious life, in a life bound by ritual and community, by repetition, by work, by giving, by receiving, by mandated grace. That's Nadia Bowles-Weber. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. Thanks for being with us.